All right, all right, all right, all right, all right. I have a dream. This nation will rise up, live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created. This means people can start finally crawl out from under that mountain of debt. And by the way, when this happens, the whole economy is better off. With all due respect, that's a bunch of malarkey. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Democracy simply doesn't work. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It's the Ricochet Podcast. I'm Rob Long, joined by Charlie Cook, sitting in for Peter and James. Today, our guest is Jay Bhattacharya. We're going to do an exit interview for Dr. Fauci. Stay tuned. I can hear you! Welcome to the Ricochet Podcast, episode number 607, which uh, always seems surprising to me. Uh, I am Rob Long, and I am one of the co-founders of Ricochet, and I am uh, not joined today by Peter Robinson, who's off, I don't know, where, where is Peter? I have no idea. Nor am I joined by James Lilacs, to James Lilacs' great delight. He is running some kind of booth. I hope it's the butter frying booth at the uh, Minnesota State Fair. Um so it's just me, but uh, luckily uh, we have the A-team. Uh, we are joined by Charles Cook, Charlie Cook from Florida. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? So look, I, let's get this out of the right way. I, I've known you a long time. Uh, is Charlie, is you, are you, wh- which, what are you? What would you prefer? Both. both. Really? I've always been called both. Yeah, it just doesn't bother me. Who calls you Charlie, though? Who in your life? Uh, my parents. Okay. But I grew up as Charles and decided I wanted to be Charlie when I was a teenager because I thought Charles sounded too stuffy. And then, in fact, when I started at National Review writing, I was Charlie Cook. But there's already a Charlie Cook, the pollster. And he emailed me and said, I get a lot of your hate mail. (laughs) People keep writing to me and saying, why are you a conservative now why do you keep writing strange things about taxes and guns and so i said you know would you like me as the young intern uh compared to you the well-seasoned political pro to change my name to change my name like it's sag like you're an actor exactly so i i didn't just put charles which is my name but i put in the two middle initials but people think i'm being pretentious actually i was just trying to save charlie cook without knees now i do uh, like the two middle initials i am also a member of the two middle initial club and so i always enjoy it when somebody else has it so i i know there's obviously there's news to talk about but these are the things that are on my mind right now uh your two middle names are they is that a nested name inside your name or is it these are just two different names no i just have two middle names okay because in my 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 middle names are the name of this name my great-grandfather so I have to basically, his first name is my first middle name, and his last name is my second middle name. You know what I'm saying? That, does that make well, sense? Well, yes, yes. I mean, my one of my middle names is the name of my grandfather. I don't know where the other one came from. I should ask. Well, you probably should use all of those names now to just distinguish yourself from everybody else, because you have recently been outed in the wake of um, Biden's uh, President Biden's order to... Um, I guess eliminate. I don't know how you actually eliminate debt. What what happens? Um, this is just the actual process of it. But to uh, uh, eliminate uh, uh, ten thousand dollars of um, uh, of uh, for people who qualify, meaning to household incomes over two hundred fifty uh, under two hundred fifty thousand dollars, kind of rich. Um, you just eliminate ten grand, like it's gone. And you uh, recently uh, are invaded against it, and then we're uh, caught up. As are you? 
as the guy who took this PPP loan um, for Mad Dogs and Englishmen. So you want to clear that up, <laughs> Charles, yeah. Charles C.W. Cook? Well, I don't know if you ever get this or how much time you spend on Twitter. I'm not a big Twitter fan, but I sort of have to use it for work. And whatever you do, someone will respond at some point, this you, with a screenshot of something they believe to be hypocritical. Right. And I started getting this yesterday en masse, and I was completely confused as to what my hypocrisy could possibly be here, because I didn't even go to college in America. So, <laughs> It turns out uh, that these people believed, <laughs> after a cursory search of the ProPublica PPP loan forgiveness database, that I had received, along with Kevin Williamson of National Review, nearly a quarter of a million dollars in PPP loans that were forgiven. God, I would hate to think what Kevin would do with that money. <laughs> For my podcast <laughs> with Kevin, Mad Dogs and Englishman. Right. Uh, I mean, had they scrolled down on the page that came up that said Mad Dogs and Englishman Inc., they would have seen that it said 29 employees restaurant. And it turns out that the only variables here that have anything in common with me or my life are the word Florida, because it's restaurants in Tampa, Florida, where I don't live, and Mad Dogs and Englishmen. Well, a lot of things called Mad Dogs and Englishmen, obviously. But they were absolutely convinced, and um, but, I, I mean, can put that to rest. I do not own a restaurant in Tampa. I, I can't only imagine how terrible that restaurant would be, by the way. <laughs> no offense. But, alright, so we gotta get to this, because I think this is a big story, but um, had they been right, mm. I think this is what bothers me about it. Just just say you did have that. Just say you did do that. The, the idea that these two kinds of things are being conflated, the government passing a law saying you must close your business, you have to close your business, and your uh, your willingness or your enthusiasm for getting a you know degree in French socialist literature. Those are two vastly different things. One is to compensate you for a choice you did not make. I don't think there's anybody who took PPP money who would have prefer who would not have preferred to simply keep their business open. Right. Whereas I think there are a lot of people who should have been dis who should be dissuaded from taking on enormous loans to study nonsense or am, am I making too much of a distinction here? No, I think I think the distinction is fair. I had some misgivings about the PPP program. I think an awful lot of the money was stolen. Right. Well, it always, it's always is, right. going to be stolen. And I think our aid went too far and went on too long and all of that. But as you say, this is grotesque. Uh, in, in tone and structure, the PPP program was more akin to a takings clause program yeah, exactly. than to a bailout. I mean, essentially, the government said, we are making claims on you. In this case, we're taking away your ability to open and run your business. Here is some compensation. And you know, that compensation, first off, went to workers, not to the, the owners. It wasn't a slush fund. And second, it was clear up front that the money would be forgiven if it went to the workers. In other words, if it didn't go to the workers, you had to pay it back. Right, right. If it did go to salaries and healthcare and so on, then you didn't have to pay it back. Now, th this is the opposite of student loans. When people take out student loans, the deal is extremely clear. It's, you will use this money to buy a product that you want 
benefit from that product and then pay us back. Um, that there is no if or or about that, or at least there wasn't until Joe Biden decided Congress didn't matter. And you know, I, I think that that has to matter a great deal. And one thing I would just add as well is, you know, you, you mentioned French literature, and I it, it is love, obviously. Yeah, I was going to say, because it is annoying that there are all these ridiculous degrees. And one of the reasons people can't pay back many of their loans is because they took them out and then they uh, used them to study subjects that haven't really helped them. I mean, we don't talk enough about this, but that's why they can't pay them back. But, you know, forget French literature for a moment. Let's take something we all presumably agree is useful, medicine. The case is just as strong, if not stronger, there. And the, the ads are going to say, and they should say, because it kills two birds with one stone, why should a mechanic have to pay for your right. theatre course? Agreed. But why should a mechanic have to pay for your medical degree? <laughs> it's ludicrous. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, right. Whereas PPP was given to the mechanic. Exactly. But also, these, I mean, look, I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene is no, I mean, I'm certainly a supporter of her. I think she's a nut, and I don't think she should be in the public sphere. But she had a construction company in Georgia, apparently, and they took a PPP loan. Um, and I, I see nothing wrong with that. I mean, there was the government saying you can't have your business. And that was, a, as you say, it was like a compensation for a taking. Um, the the argument about education, though, like everything else, it be, it, it starts as a, um, as a, 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 I guess, I don't really know. I haven't seen how it polls for them, but as a weirdly um assumed assumed to be a popular measure for democrats right so they're kind of they've kind of got their foot on the gas heading to the midterms they, the midterms don't look right now like they're going to be a the giant disaster for the democrats it looks like they could keep the senate probably won't keep the house but but it'll be tight the the wave it won't be a wave election it looks like that that may that may change but right now that's what it looks like and so they believe that this is going to add to their momentum do you think it's going to? No, I think they're wrong. I, I think it's going to infuriate people. I think this is a disaster. And I think you can tell that it's not just conservatives who think that uh, by some of the notable dissents in the last week. Right. And first off, we had Jason Furman, who was you know, Obama's favorite economist. That's always how he's touted, which, if, you know, he had a thread on Twitter that eviscerated it. And it does need eviscerating. Every single right. thing is wrong with this. It's wrong constitutionally. There's no authority. It's wrong morally. It's wrong economically. It's coming at a time of mass inflation. Uh, then we had swing state Democrats in competitive races in Colorado, in Ohio. In, Ohio especially. Yeah, New Hampshire saying no. Then we had uh, Senator Masto Cortez in in Nevada, saying no. And then we started to see pieces about Democratic consultants saying, well, maybe it won't be too bad if no one hears about it. <laughs> well, right, the Republicans right. are in charge of that, not the Democrats. You never, ever in politics do something that is bad for you on the assumption that people won't hear about it, especially yeah, so in a midterm somebody, election right. year. Right, exactly. But So I'm, I'm, I guess I'm wondering whether there's any, I mean, whatever a loan of any kind or a financial obligation of any kind is erased there's always the what they call the moral hazard here so i just saw this report this morning you know look if if we if we erase everybody's debt the way we're going to erase it um in four years we'll be back exactly where it was um 
or worse, right? I mean, what when when you actually do something like this, when you when you intervene in a market, rather than let people see themselves as saying, "Well, look, I don't want to be stuck with two hundred thousand dollars in debt, so I'm going to learn something useful." Um, how bad could this be? I mean, I I think it's catastrophic, and I will tell people that you know, in addition to having what you would call, you know, thought through or ideological or intellectual or practical arguments for fiscal conservatism. I, I have a moral argument that I've just always believed. I'm very, I'm so as I'm old fashioned and simplistic in this way. And that is, I think people should work, right? Uh, unless they absolutely can't. And I think people should pay their debts <laughs> unless they absolutely can't. And I think that those things are good in and of themselves, irrespective of what they do to other people. So we could talk a lot about what this will do to other people, and that's a huge part of this. But I also just think this is bad. Like I yeah. was not raised to promise to pay back loans and then not to do it. And you know, much in the same way as it is good for people not to, say, steal things, even if there's no chance of their being caught, even if it is good for people you know, not to lie to themselves, even if there's no externalities. I, I think it is good to, to fulfill your obligations. But the consequences for other people are enormous. I mean, y y you can't forgive a loan that's been taken out and spent. This, this is not student loan forgiveness. It's not student loan cancellation. It's student loan transference. And the product of that is going to be the people who didn't take out the loan and use the loan and benefit from the loan. Right. Uh, paying for the people who did, who have the lowest unemployment rate in the country, the best prospects, um, you know, better health outcomes. You can run the the gamut here. And the, the, I just the, think are, it's a very specific slice of America that's going to benefit from this. And it's certainly not. Yeah. The people living paycheck to paycheck and 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 struggling. It's not right. anyone on the other on the on the underside of the American economy. And I think it's socially catastrophic. A again, you know, it's catastrophic in my view for the people who aren't paying the loans. I think it's immoral, but it, it's socially catastrophic. I mean, it, it is in a sense a, a declaration of class warfare. And you know, I feel now, you know, I will look at people who benefited in this way at my expense and I will resent them. And I went to university. God knows how a mechanic or a waitress must feel looking at these people and saying, right. are you kidding me? Are you right. kidding me? <laughs> well, it's intervening also. I mean, it, it, it's the final intervention in a series of interventions into um, the price of a of a product, as you say, an education that has been insanely distorted over the past thirty years, but the cost of a college education, I think, has you know, it's, it's some, it's 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 gone up by uh, over the cost of the consumer price index by some gigantic factor. I mean, I think it's like five times. It's insane, um, and the product itself hasn't gotten any better. But like anything else, things when you subsidize the cost of something, the costs always go up. So my, my, I guess my, the, the only time I've heard arguments like that recently has been in 2008, 2009, after the financial collapse, when there's this huge uh, movement, which in fact worked, uh, for mortgage abatement and, and, and debt restructuring or debt elimination in some cases. And I had a friend of mine who's like, well, listen, when I grew up, uh, we lost our house twice because my dad was kind of, you know, kind of a risk taker, right? And I was always, I was always terrified of owing anything, any money. And he's a very successful writer, very successful guy in Hollywood. And he said he just saved money so he would never have any debt. 
And he waited because he saw in Los Angeles home prices go crazy. And he knew that they would have to collapse because the bubble always bursts. And he waited. And when it burst, the first thing the feds did was they came in to bail out the prices. And he said, well, that's not how it works. You're supposed to let guys like me bargain hunt. And I think the intervention in, in, uh, in college education, college education costs has been longer. It's a social, we consider it a social good, have for years. I mean, it seems to me like there's no end to this now, right? I mean, th- that this is simply, you know, what, what, what do they say? This, we're only going to do this one time. This is the only time this is ever going to happen. It'll never happen again. But we all know it's going to happen in five years or ten years. It'll continue happening. And the price of college of college education will continue to go up because why why shouldn't it? The cost is being subsidized by, you know, 100 million Americans who aren't going to go to college. I mean, I, th- I think that's confirmation of its indefensibility, that this is not tied to anything else. The, the U.S. Congress did not get together and say, all right, costs are spiraling, what can we do? And then as part of a broad package, change, say, dischargeability rules so that you can right. add your student loans in and bankruptcy, change efficiency standards for colleges, uh, change the loan program and its expectations, perhaps get the institutions of higher learning that are receiving the money to co-sign the note. And as part of that, and I would still oppose this to be clear, as part of that, (laughs) uh, transfer some of the loans to the public purse. They did none of it. And so this exists in isolation. and, And that has two effects. The first is it's actually going to make college probably more expensive because of course it will. Of course it it's, will. they're going to look at this and say, okay, great. Um, we, we achieved some of what we wanted with no skin off our nose. Um, but also it highlighted the complete arbitrariness of the decision in that this doesn't apply to people who just finished paying off their loans. It doesn't apply to the people who didn't take out the loans. It doesn't apply to the people who went to cheaper colleges. It doesn't apply to the people who will take out right. a loan in right. a year. So you've got this, this lightning strike at this particular moment in time for no particular reason other than the midterms are coming up. But that in and of itself is going to inform behavior because, as you say, there are going to be people out there who say, well... Uh, I was a little bit worried looking at the mountain of debt that my friends have about going to this college, but now maybe I'll just do it. You're going to have parents out there who say, I'm not putting money into a 529. I'm going to spend it. You're going to have uh, debtors out there who choose not to prioritize the repayment of their loans, uh, but wait, because they think this could happen again. So it's not just that it's not tied to anything else, which is a problem. It's that it's made it worse. Right. Of course. It's going to make everything. So, I mean, I've been, uh, my, my reflexive uh, political position has always been government stay out of everything. Um, against all this stuff, against industrial policy, against all that stuff. So I've been trying to read up, we're, we're going to be doing a podcast soon um, with a b- really brilliant guy. He's a good, great thinker, uh, uh, essentially about China. And his, you know, his priors are that we probably do need an industrial policy um, to compete with China. So what would be, what, what would be the harm? And I'm not saying there isn't a harm. I just wonder what would be the harm of, since we're talking about what the government, what the people, what the taxpayers should pay for, what educational training 
the taxpayers pay for. So right now they pay for this enormous amount of training in uh, in the military already, right? That's a form of training, form of technical training that actually employers seem to prize. What what would what would taxpayers not resent covering? And it, it, is that is that even relevant? I mean, one of the things that does rise my gorge here in is just the the sheer. I mean, that's not for me to say, but I, the sheer frivolousness and closed and and cul-de-sac quality of some of these degrees that we're paying for, right? What what should what should, if anything, should American society be willing to foot the bill for? Well, in my view, or in the view of the average voter, I, I find it <laughs> difficult to imagine the latter, uh, especially in a country this big, which incidentally is an argument not for doing right big things. I mean, from my perspective, I don't as you know, think that the federal government should do very much. So I don't object in principle to it providing some educational incentives or training programs for the soldiery because the federal government's role, the reason right. it exists, is to have a military. And if you need to induce people to join or reward them for having... Uh, it's an ancillary benefit. ...been injured, uh, yeah. But, I mean, as a rule, I, I'd say very, very little. Now... <laughs> no, the, the the reason that I find this so appalling, I think, is that it, it is it is a choice. Um, if you think about poverty, we argue a great deal about how to deal with poverty, but there are very few people who say that nobody in any capacity should deal with it. Right? I mean, so you might right, get people right. like me who say there should be no federal welfare. Uh, I'm more open to it, albeit on a limited basis at the state level. And I'm very much into it at the personal and charity exactly. level. Exactly. And so, you know, however mean I might sound when talking about the federal budget, uh, I have no issue with it. In fact, I endorse wholeheartedly and help out myself in, say, food banks or, mm-hmm. you know, s- charity giving. So we, we all sort of get together. And although we're disagreeing often profoundly about how we do it, we agree that that people who are down and out, who can't help themselves, who genuinely are in need of the basics, should should be helped. And as human beings, we're going to do that in some way or another. <laughs> That's not the case with student loans, right? right? I mean, we're not all sitting around going, well, of course, we all agree that we have to pay off this doctor's student loans. The question is how we do it. I mean, absolutely not. Um, it's the, the, the very idea is ridiculous. And um, I think, therefore, when I've heard people try to justify this by saying, well, look at all the other things the government does, uh, it's it's just a weak argument. Um, I mean, until a few years ago, this had never even been proposed. This was not, um, you know, this, this was not on the horizon. Um, perhaps there and is you, a and- role for states in subsidizing education, yeah. running state universities and so on, but federally, come on. And and you do have to. I mean, well, state schools actually already already subsidize the the in state. You know, there's always in state tuition for tuition. Mm-hmm. Tuition is different mm-hmm. for people who live in the state than who don't live outside the state. So there is isn't any answer. There's a great, uh, um, or I mean, I saw it a couple of weeks ago uh, exchange between Elizabeth Warren and some dude. Yeah. And the dude says, "Was I an idiot? Am I a fool? Like, uh, am I a chump?" for saving for my kids. And she kind of like smiles weakly and then walks away. 
thank you for your thoughts. I think she says, thank you for your thoughts. But that does seem like a very dangerous virus to inject into the na- into the national culture. The idea that if you play by the rules and plan, that you're a chump. Right. I mean, it, it is it is actually rewarding uh, lack of planning. I mean, it, it is, and again, that's why I bring up poverty because the 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 good logical response to what you've just said is okay, but what about someone who is really poor? They're on food stamps. They're down on their luck. They can't save. Right. Whatever they do, they can't save for college. And I have some time for that. The, the the reason it just doesn't sway me in this case, among others, is uh well, there's many of them. First, this is just not what Biden did. I mean, if he'd said up to forty thousand dollars in income, okay, not two hundred and fifty. Um, two, I don't want to hear any more about this from professors at universities that have 45 billion dollar endowments <laughs> yes that would be that there's something incredibly grating about that and the idea that they now are absolutely one more layer of insulation against any kind of market competition right. and then finally uh because we or should uh have agency and we already have a system that allows people to go to college who don't have the cash to pay for it, and it's called the student loan system. Um, so we're not actually talking here about whether people can go if they want to. Um, we're talking about whether people can go if they want to and then have to pay it back. And right, right. as such, I just have very little time for it, I'm afraid. Yeah, no, I think it's a. I, th- I agree. I think it's a. a um, it's going to be a slow motion disaster. And so I, I do believe it's a virus we've just injected into the culture that it's going to be a big, big problem, and uh, we'll be paying the price for it for the next ten, twenty five years of that kind of um, decision making that people are going to be making. That people are going to making that has completely unconnected to the realities they may face and. And, and the it's one thing we haven't talked idea. about is that it's illegal, <laughs> which really matters. Yeah, that's right. I was going to get to that afterwards. Like, yeah, I don't even. I don't even know how. How does it? I don't even know how it's going to work. It's just. Do you? Does it just disappear on your on the website if you go to your student loan dashboard? No. It just suddenly becomes zero. No, I read this morning that anyone who wishes to benefit from it has to apply and attach an affidavit that uh, accurately represents their income. Well, that's just your tax form. It is, but there's a couple of reasons that's good. The first one is that if you lie, there will be obvious tax liabilities that that incurs because the federal government will be able to check it against your tax return. Um, the, the second is that that provides a little bit of room for legal maneuvers and challenges. I mean, if you if you just logged right. in one day right. and suddenly your Pink. account, yeah, well, I, that's more difficult. But this... This is an affirmative process. It's a process that will take some time. And, you know, from what I understand, the problem here is not that this is in any way defensible. And the memo the OLC put out in justification was absolutely preposterous. I mean, just a joke. Uh, The problem is that it's hard to see under our current 
constructions of standing within the courts, who can sue? I don't know. I'm hoping someone will come up with a a good way of demonstrating harm because there are real harms. But sometimes when the harms are so distributed, then courts regard that as really an objection to public policy rather than a legal question. And um, they reject well, the case. So we'll have to see. That's probably what this will be, I think, because the, 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 I don't know what the harm would be if it's not a harm to everyone else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's like that is a major class action lawsuit. Right. That, everyone that, else seems to Yeah. That's, right. I think that's true. Um, yeah, I wish there was, such, there was an optimistic way to, to, to uh, segue. I mean, James, of course, is not here. He's at the state fair, and I'm hoping he'll join us for the close if he can with some appropriate sound effects in the background. Um, so I'm not even going to bother to do a um, to do a segue. I'm just going to go right into the spot, Liquid IV. Um, look, everybody's got part of their daily routine that is important to them. Some people do workouts, some people do yoga, meditation. Um, I find myself scrolling through Instagram, um, something like that. Anything you do, any ritual you do to, to jumpstart the day and clear your head and give you energy and everything, um, this fits right into that. The hot summer months are here, and we need to be proactive about keeping our bodies fueled and hydrated. Making hydration a priority can help us feel healthier in our everyday lives. One stick of liquid IV in 16 ounces of water hydrates you two times faster and more efficiently than water alone. Liquid IV products taste great. 10 refreshing flavors like Concord Grape, Lemon Lime, Pina Colada, Tropical Punch. Makes you sound like a summer drink. Um, I, uh, do, I, don't know, I don't use Liquid IV because I haven't gotten any yet, but I do know that James, if James were here, he'd be telling us how much that his wife loves it. Um, so sometimes when we get these new products and we try them out, someone in the family tries them out first, and she apparently is a Liquid IV believer. 16 ounces of water, hydrates you two times faster and more efficiently water alone, contains five essential vitamins, B3, B5, B6, B12, and vitamin C, three times the electrolytes of traditional sports drinks, made with premium ingredients, non-GMO, free from gluten, dairy, and soy. Get your liquid IV in bulk nationwide at Costco, or better, you can get 15% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use code ricochet at checkout. So that's liquidiv.com, all one word, code ricochet. You get 15% off anything you order when you shop. And you get better hydration today. Use promo code ricochet at liquidiv.com. And we thank Liquid IV for sponsoring the Ricochet podcast. We are joined now by Ricochet's own. I'm going to call you Ricochet's own, even though I think you probably don't. We're not paying you. Um, uh, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, who uh, I, you have a lot of titles, professor of health policy, Stanford, Research Associate at the National Bureau of Economics Research. You are a co-author of the Great Barrington Declaration, which is we all know is junk science until a few weeks ago when suddenly it wasn't junk science anymore. We realized it was right. Fringe science, Rob. Fringe. <laughs> Fringe science, right? But um, but what you are is you're the you're you're you are my personal COVID advisor. You were my advisor when I had COVID, and you're my advisor now. Um, and you are. But just before we get started, you're in Rome. I am. How's Rome? It's beautiful. Oh man! See, I, I, I the they got frescoes on walls here, Rob. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, they paint on the walls there, and uh, and so did you just meet? You met a big Roman celebrity here. Uh, yeah, I, I, we got to meet the Pope. It was really interesting. Well, I just have one question: Were you wearing a mask? <laughs> I wasn't. Okay, all right. <laughs> um, okay, so um, I know uh, we got you. You're in Rome. I don't want to keep you from what what I imagine is aperitivo hour in about uh, ten minutes. But I just want to ask. Okay, um, Anthony Fauci, he's going. 
at the end of the year, give him a grade. On lifetime achievement? Yeah, B. why not? B, okay. Lifetime achievement, B, for on COVID, F. F. Um, you are uh, one of the people giving him an F. Um, but why, why, why is that not a universally agreed upon grade? I mean, I certainly think he deserves an F, but it feels like we put a whole lot of emotional investment into this man and into not recognizing the truth. Well, the COVID, uh, the COVID pandemic has been incredibly divisive, Rob, as as your reader, as listeners well know. Um, it's been very difficult for uh, uh, people to oppose Tony Fauci's views because he's made it he's made it difficult. He's smeared the reputations of anyone who spoke up against him, including you. Uh, we should say, including me, yeah. uh, and Dan, and um, tried to create this illusion that there was a consensus in favor of his position when there wasn't one among scientists. Um, and it's made it really difficult to assess him honestly by lay people because, you know, th they've been subject to this idea that he was the science. Right. He even said that. Um, and it's hard to shake that idea. I, I think time will tell I, as he, as he leaves the power that he holds over the minds of scientists and over the minds of the public will, will wane and a more clear headed assessment can happen. I, I don't see how you can, in a clear-headed way, look at what happened during the pandemic and the advice he gave to lock down schools, uh, businesses, uh, this idea that somehow you could eradicate the virus when we had no technology to do so, it, it, the advice he gave that uh, somehow the vaccine would get rid of the virus when it wasn't going to. Um, I don't see how you can look at that advice, which has been so damaging, and give him anything other than an F. Um, okay, he said on uh, Rachel Maddow, which has got its own problems on Tuesday, a quote, and I have, I have a theory about this quote, and then I'm going to give you, I'm going to read the quote and give you the theory, and you tell me if I'm wrong. He said, there are so many things we learned on the run with COVID. The things that we thought we knew in the beginning turned out as the months went by to not be the case, which really forced us to adapt and change some of our policies and recommendations. That's what he said, which sounds very reasonable. I, I posit that the it's exactly backwards, that there were many, many things we knew about respiratory viruses before COVID that we just chose to forget. And it wasn't that we um, had to adapt. It's that we, unfortunately, we adapted. We, 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 we shouldn't have adapted. We should have remembered what we knew and followed through on the science that was you know, available to us in November 1, 2019, um, you know, the pre-COVID period. Um, am I wrong? Is Fauci wrong? Or is he sort of half right? Am I half right? Um, there's only really one right answer to this, which is that I'm correct. But go ahead. <laughs> I mean, you're much closer to right than he is. I think the problem is, you know, when he he says the science changed, what he really means is that uh, that he changed his mind finally after overwhelming evidence forced him to do so. If he had permitted a discussion, a free discussion among scientists to happen without smearing the reputation of scientists who disagreed with him, that con that realization that his initial ideas were wrong would have come much earlier. The realization, for instance, of what you just said, which is that this was a absolutely extraordinary way to deal with the pandemic, this, this, uh, these lockdown strategies, rather than a traditional strategy of focused protection, um, that realization would have happened much earlier had Tony Fauci had the humility and the openness to permit that conversation to happen in the first place. Well, why didn't he, do you think? I mean, did, did he never have it? Is it, is it a, um, let me ask you to do some armchair psychologizing. Is it just that when you're 
the guy in the room who knows what he's talking about. You know, you come into the room and you're filled with the Oval Office. It doesn't matter who the president is. Nobody around the president knows anything about this stuff. That's like, and you walk in, you're the boss. You're, you're the guy with all the information. You just naturally just turn into a kind of an arrogant jerk. What's the, uh, how do we avoid the Fauci syndrome when the next I mean, from all uh, uh, reports I've had of him, I've never met him personally. He's a he's a very sweet man, um, very persuasive. Seems you know very empathetic, um, but at the same time, he's been at the head of the NIAID for forty years almost, a- and very few people tell him no because he is in charge of giving out grants. Why would you Why would you dare to to oppose him when in fact your livelihood may depend on him agreeing with you? And so I think in that situation, it's very easy to have this hubris buildup right. where you really, and you see it when he says something like, uh, if you criticize me, you're not simply criticizing a man, you're criticizing science itself. Only somebody who, who really has truly a level of hubris that is almost, you know, Greek tragedy like, <laughs> right. uh, would you have this, have, have that happen to But I guess what I'm trying to, there, there, there was a difference to this in my head and with it, it's a distinction between science and research science i think of a guy in a coat in a lab and a thing in a petri dish and puts a little droppers in there and comes back the next day and it's blue or purple or green research is just collecting data the number of people getting sick and how they're getting sick and the number of people in the hospital and how they're getting cured and healed and how they're not and that the most troubling thing to me was that that seemed to be the the, where the most conflict was is that in the interpretation of, say, for instance, the Santa Clara stuff, like he just didn't interpret any of that information, any of that data, the way other people interpret it. And it's not at that point, it's not science. It's just really like looking at numbers, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, science always has some ju- level of judgment, right? I mean, it's, it's it's never as black and white as people think. Otherwise, it wouldn't be fun, frankly, Rob. If it was just, if it's just, <laughs> yeah, you're having fun. Well, you're in Rome now. It's like, yeah. Yeah, uh, but 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 I think um, I think the issue is that he he was very um, uh, well, I don't know what the word is. I mean, I think I think he was he assumed he knew better than the, than everybody else, and he, uh, any data that that contradicted his view of the right policy, he was just going to dismiss out of hand. And he that's essentially what he did for a long period. Of, like, just take another example: is is immunity after COVID recovery. He didn't recognize that, although the data piled up on it rapidly through the through the whole right. pandemic very for, very early on in the pandemic it was clear that people weren't getting reinfected at very high rates and when reinfections happened they were relatively mild compared to the first infection he ignored those those data for months and months and months for almost a full year he and for instance on vaccine mandates he didn't make exceptions for people who were covid recovered why I mean, it's only somebody who's so certain of himself right. that that that, that oh, no, it t- it just has to take tremendous data to like make make you change your mind. Do you, so, do you think it's certain of himself, or do you just think it's the idea that well, um, I'm going to get blamed if someone gets sick because I, I I I took my foot off the most draconian vision it, it it always seemed to me to be at cdc in fact and frankly even in the oval office at the time this desperate need not to get blamed for this sort of occurring virus naturally or otherwise um that really we have no defenses against is is going to make its way through the population 200 million people have been affected infected in america with covid um i think that's the number it's very close to that 
I mean, <laughs> at that point, it's like it doesn't matter who the president is or who the who the head of the CDC is or who the, who's sitting in Fauci's office. It's just what's what's going to happen. It's going to happen, right? Yeah, I, mean, I, th- I think you're right about that. I think that everyone wanted to point to, you know, like to, to 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 try to deflect blames. At the very least, they could say, "Well, we we did everything we could." Um, as a result, they put all of the public focus on a single threat to it this virus and ignored all of the other threats to public health and to public right, right. and well-being more generally like children, you know, for our children for instance where schools were closed for so long on the basis of advice that tony fauci gave um i mean i think um the that's unfortunate i think i mean that's not just even his fault that's more broadly uh, maybe it's a human fault or but, but it was just a fault of our, of our political system of wanting to avoid def- deflect blame i think if a good leader would have done would have said, sat down, you know, sort of uh, uh, FDR-like and said, look, uh, or, or, you know, Winston Churchill-like, look, this is going to be bad. This is going to be very bad. We're going to do our best. Um, we're going to we're going to try to protect the vulnerable as best we can. We're going to move resources around as best we can. But I can't promise you um, that we're going to we're going to end up uh, with with everyone. Everyone's still here. We just can't do that. This is not the kind of thing where we have a human and no human being can guarantee that anyone human right. being guaranteeing you that is lying to you. If they'd done that, if they sat down with like a fireside chat like thing, um, I think they would have been uh, the, been open to allowing the debates to happen. Mm-hmm. They went open to like changing as the as the evidence came in much more effectively than they, than they ended up being. It was this brittle position of like, okay, yeah, we can get rid of the virus. We have the technology. Just listen to us. That was the problem. Did anybody ever come to you even in subsequently? Because I know that you 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 had a lot of pushback for for the Great Barrington Declaration for uh, your statements during the pandemic. Has anybody ever come to you and said, "Well, obviously, we I agreed with you. Just it was it was just inappropriate to say, or we we couldn't American people we couldn't handle the uncertainty or the ambiguity or the um, I guess what what you just what, what you just said the acceptance that you were um." you were advocating has, has that been anybody ever said that to you there's, there's been a few like that um i mean nothing no one at the no high official as yet um right. and of course, <laughs> yeah, the pandemic, don't wait for that by the way <laughs> <laughs> well i mean there, there were some like you know like I, I like a hero of mine during the pandemic is ron desantis who, who reached yeah. out early um i mean it's this is tough i i think there's the post-mortem um sorry about that i'm, I'm in a i just did a talk and i'm uh, <laughs> uh anyway so um i like the, it the postmortem around this is going to be uh, very difficult for people because a lot of mistakes were made. I think uh, to me, the key thing is we have to do this in a, in a spirit of forgiveness. I mean, it was difficult. The whole thing was difficult, uh, but we have to be clear my eyed about what went wrong. So that it doesn't happen again and make reforms that it doesn't happen again. That's, that's where I'm going to be working the next few years. So, all right. Uh, I, I, I know, I know you got to run. I want to ask you two questions. One, one about DeSantis, because you, and I, 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 I say every week on this podcast, I am trying my best to not devolve or evolve into a DeSantis fanboy. But, you know, we have a, there are a lot of political leaders who contended with COVID, every state governor and a president, and also leaders around the world. Um, all in, all of them, Sweden, uh, UK, Italy, I mean, or, you know, Singapore, California, the Oval Office. Would you pick DeSantis as probably the one political leader in the world on the globe? Yeah. So, I mean, I think there was, there was, there was a, a several leaders I'd say were really good, but DeSantis stood out to me because he actually read the, 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 the data. He read the right. evidence. 
and he and he adjusted as a consequence of the evidence that not very many political leaders did that rob um I, you know i think in the united states there are people like uh i mean i've, I've met with uh, uh pete ricketts who's the governor of nebraska who's quite mm-hmm. good um and there have been some political leaders outside the u.s uh that that change their minds over time relatively quickly uh that that uh, that, that i'd characterize as as, as having like the, for instance the swedish political leaders i think deserve a, an absolute medal and the public health right. in sweden uh they stood stood the test of, of of tremendous pressure when they knew what the science was um so there, there, are some, there are definitely heroes around the world in the united states i think DeSantis really to me stands out yeah, I mean, he he was the one guy who, but but I think it came. I mean, I guess my theory here is that it came from the reading, like he read it. He's a smart guy. He digested it. He uh, got you on the phone. He argued with you. He heard your arguments, and and then he made a judgment, which is sort of what politicians are supposed to do. It's hard though, right? I mean, I think most politicians don't have the capacity to go read epidemiological papers, Rob. It's just <laughs> it's not, well, that's it's ridiculous. I do it all the time. <laughs> but I, th- I think the key thing is like you get uh, you make sure that if you have a Fauci in the room, you also have, you know, a Martin Kuldorf also in the room with you. Right. So you hear both sides. You don't accept Fauci's word that he's he is the science. That's the difference. They used to do that for Reagan. Apparently, they would organize these train wrecks, they called them, where, you know, two yeah, people you just, sit in- or Lincoln with a team of rivals sitting there arguing how best to pro- prosecute the Civil War. I mean, you have to have uh, a lot of views around you as a political leader, because you're in a difficult spot. You're not trained as an epidemiologist or whatever. Right. Right. Um, you're not trained as a military uh, leader. You have to have good advice around you, and the only way that it comes out of it is debate, I think. All right, so um, is COVID over? In some places, most places, uh, this is what COVID is going to look like. It's going to there's going to be cases forever. Uh, the cases and will have decoupled from the deaths to a large degree. So it's the same number of cases is not producing the same number of deaths or hospitalizations. That's COVID forever. Uh, there are places that are seeing like massive rises in cases and deaths, like uh, Japan, places they have not seen waves before. They're seeing waves now, so it's not entirely over. But the the uh, the the we're nearing the endemic phase of the disease endemic means it's here for forever to stay here forever to stay and so what what should people be aware of what what, what you know like get your booster get your what, what would you recommend people do just be in in to 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 enter the endemic phase well i think i think first of all stop worrying so much about covid that's the most important thing i could tell to, tell to most people because they, you've already had covid and recovered you've had the vaccine you're as protected as you can be i'd say live your life um if you're older and more vulnerable there may still be things to do uh you know for instance i think we absolutely need to continue to do a lot more research on better treatments right we have to do continue to do research uh at, you know we have the treatments are we have are okay like paxlovid seems i was really excited when i saw the randomized trial but now in real life it seems okay it's not not perfect as well as the randomized trial said uh so we need more we need more research on treatments there are some patients who have actually have had legitimate long covid um symptoms that that i think we have to research better i don't think the vast majority of people who have long covid are just it's um there are other reasons for it having not necessarily to do with covid itself more with the anxiety created by the by the uh, by the lockdown policies we followed but there are legitimate post-viral syndrome syndrome and there's still a lot of people who get covid uh to this day like older people who are still vulnerable to it so it's not like we should do nothing i i, I think the thing that the thing is that we can now transition to uh a period where covid is treated like one of the other you know, 200 or so right, infected right. diseases that are in common circulation, human, human, common human circulation, treat it like that 
as opposed to the unique disease we have to re- restructure society around. Okay, so you said a spirit of forgiveness. You have to approach it with a spirit of forgiveness and openness and all that, you know, yes. all that Christian stuff. <laughs> um, works both ways, though, right? I mean, you you came under a lot of pressure, and you know there was some there was some actual career danger for you that was, it it was actually quite dicey, right? So, um, are you ready to forgive that? Yes. What no, choice really? do come I have? on. <laughs> Rob, I don't really? have a choice. I mean, some of my friends betrayed me. I, I I don't I don't have any capacity to if I let the if I let that um, the desire for vengeance to sit in my my heart out or my head, right? I'll, I'll just be destroyed. I mean, I have to I have to forgive. I mean, it's it's almost a self defense mechanism at this point. I just have to forgive and and then I don't mean that I haven't learned lessons. I've learned a lot of lessons and and also honestly, I, Rob, I wouldn't have gotten to know you if it wasn't. <laughs> That's the true. There are so many benefits. <laughs> Um, no, right, no, so, exactly. no, I'm sure in all seriousness, that's true. Like, so I, I, there are some offsetting benefits, many offsetting, really amazing benefits. So I, I just, so I don't, I don't want to, uh, overplay like this, the, tr- the, the, the people should be sad for me, but, but I guess, I guess what I'm, I'm using you, you as sort of uh, as a personal and also as a sort of a larger example in that, um, it, I think it's fair to say I'm no epidemiologist, but I think it's fair to say that there's another one of these coming, like, this is just the world we live in. Um, how do we keep the next guy in the Fauci chair from getting an F. Well, for one thing, I think uh, we have to never make, he's in my view, he's like J Edgar Hoover. I call him J Edgar Fauci in some sense. Yeah. Right. You, right. you cannot have someone in that role for 38 years. That's just not, it's not right. Um, the other, the, the, the other thing is, you know, uh, th- there should be, seen as a huge conflict of interest if you are in charge of scientific funding you don't get involved with health policy right. because then your opinions about health policy then become the the de facto opinions of the science scientists who you fund or that use careers you can make or break um and it's just it's too big of a conflict of interest i think we have to create a bright line between science and science policy within the context of federal government and state governments. Um, science policy should be so distinct such that anyone like Tony Fauci should never have anywhere close, should, should, she shouldn't be advising presidents. Right, right. right. Just ipso facto, because you fund science, therefore you don't advise, it's like you don't have uh, pharmaceutical companies evaluate whether drugs work for, and then tell the FDA what to do exactly. Right, that's a conflict of interest. Right, right. And that you think that was a, a, a one of the problems that that Fauci had, or or yeah, so like, was, one along with longevity and this idea that like I'm the person who yeah, I mean, I think that, that is a central problem. Like if 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 he if he was just the funder of NIAID, um, I give him an A. Like he did a pretty good job over 38 years. Uh, I mean, not maybe maybe I give him an A minus. I don't know. You could convince me B plus. Um, <laughs> he's, he's pretty good at this, um, but but science policy he doesn't have the breath for it and he doesn't know the depth of knowledge for it and yet he thought he did right. um and he should so he he brags about advising seven presidents every single president he advised it was a mistake that he advised the president because he was in charge of scientific funding when he's doing that those are conflicts of interest a deep one that silenced scientists because they were afraid for their careers because tony fauci controlled the their reputations tony fauci controlled their funding tony fauci controlled their success that is a huge problem. So even with hubris, he would have been fine as long as he wasn't in charge of of both scientific funding and also uh, science policy. So let me ask you this: sort of the more policy question, since we're talking about policy, um, uh, the national defense 
uh, national intelligence and um, even the diplomatic arms of the of the executive branch. They're refreshed at least every four years or at least every eight years, but almost, they're refreshed constantly, right? Yeah. And they're reassessed constantly. And the one thing about the Department of Defense is that they have this sort of ongoing internal reassessment of its process and its priorities and its strategy, right? Um, and we didn't, you know, we never did that with health policy, certainly with infectious disease policy. Should should that come under the heading now? Should that should there be sort of a national security way of looking at this stuff so that the decision makers and the and the researchers and the data collection and the data analysis becomes as rig as I mean it's not as that rigorous but as rigorous at least or as self um, examining as defense. I mean I think there's a huge advantage with with infectious disease and and epidemiology. They're they're not national secrets. There should be vastly more transparency with the data and data sharing and the science done by government scientists um, so that it can be criticized by outside scientists. That should be part of the regular culture of the scientific scientific policy agencies like the CDC and, uh, and um, uh, like, you know, the NIH is not supposed to be policy, but it has been. Um, I think that uh, that 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 kind of culture, uh, it belongs even more in science than it does in in national defense national defense there's actual secrets that you necessarily you, you necessarily right, can't open right, right. to the outside world here you there's no reason not to of course you should do that uh okay so uh, i guess the, the extra question here um it's sort of a, lo- a bigger i mean this is an unfair question but i'm gonna ask it anyway um you were uh you were in Fauci's office uh during covid instead of Fauci thought experiment about a million americans have died is that fair to have COVID since the beginning? Something. Would it have been around the same number? Yes, probably. That number but, was but, like written in. Yeah, I mean, I think I think we we it might have been a little bit less on COVID, uh, mainly because I what the, the one of the things I would have done differently is I would have recognized sooner the importance of not sending COVID infected patients back to nursing homes. I mean, that I knew in February of twenty twenty. Um, uh, right. So, I, so I think there would have been some fewer COVID deaths, but this is a really bad respiratory infectious disease. It would have been very difficult to stop it from spreading very widely. What would have been really different, though, is we would not have closed schools. Uh, many businesses right. wouldn't close. Many, uh, you know, many the, the 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 level of panic would have been less because I would have worked very hard to give people tools to protect themselves as best they can without doing unnecessary things that harm uh, themselves and others without actually protecting themselves from COVID. Um, so I think a lot of the political anxiety, the, 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 I'm sorry, the anxiety would have been less, um, mm-hmm. the political divisiveness would have been less because I would have worked very hard to make sure that no one knew what my politics were. Um, okay, last question. And I know that was the last question. I want, this is a very detailed question. This is a terrible question to end the, uh, a conversation on, but um, testing. Uh, COVID testing is now a gigantic business. I mean, there's little tents all over Manhattan and they're selling them at CVS and I have four of them at home and I had to take one to, I, the, the, it's like constant, these tests. Um, isn't there, a, was there ever a cheaper, easier, simpler test to use? The, you know, that at-home test that you have, that the antigen test, that should have been yeah. the main test we used all the all the way through. Um, the, the problem was like the, that PCR test, you had to send, you stick the thing up your nose and you, or you go to a lab and they and right. you send it to a lab and it takes two or three days, right, to get it or get the result back. Uh, the reason why that was used 
primarily was because public health wanted to know every single person that had COVID and try to trace them. Right, right. The lab finds it, whereas if, if you do it at home and test and, and you know, and then you just don't go visit grandma, um, public health doesn't know. The, the paradigm of identification of patients, quarantining, right. uh, contact tracing, that paradigm, I think, actually did a, a tremendous amount of harm. Because it, it instead of empowering people with the information locally so that they could know if they were sick and uh, or if they were infected and not inf- inf- expose vulnerable people to it or go to the doctor or whatever, I mean, that, that, that kind of individual empowerment as the paradigm for testing, that would have produced a lot of good. Um, what we did instead was this sort of top-down way of testing right. that I think ended up causing a lot of damage. I mean, a lot of people stopped trusting public health. People stopped responding to contact tracers. Uh, people didn't want to get tested. And so they went and visited grandma without a test because they didn't, they, they didn't want to risk getting tested. Right. right. And that is sort of a fractal version of what happened all through COVID, right? It was the, the, the most important thing was to maintain authority, to maintain uh, you know, a sense of who's in charge to maintain sort of uh, um, uh, procedures and processes and, and codes that were going to be nationwide. The most important thing for the COVID administration was to maintain its control over not only the conversation, but over uh, over the cure. Um, is that fair? Or is that too mean? Yeah, I don't know, I think that's completely fair. There's this idea that central control would somehow produce better results than um, some mix of of uh, wise deployment of resources by the center to to uh, empower people who were in, in vulnerable states, um, vulnerable conditions, right? So I think if, right. if 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 the government had trusted the people more, it would have done much better job. Right. Uh, that's almost always the case. Uh, last question for you, really, seriously. So you're in Rome, COVID's basically over. What now? You got to sit around and wait for the next thing to hit? <laughs> I don't know. I think I'm, I'm, uh, I'm going to write some, I have to, just to come to terms with what's happened the last two years to me, I'm going to write some sort of memoir. Thing. I don't know. Maybe, maybe people, maybe you'll buy my, one copy of it. Maybe the one of three, my mom and some, you know, maybe yeah, I'll Peter. definitely buy one. I'll definitely buy one. Let's, there's a free one, but I'll definitely buy one. <laughs> <laughs> no, I can't wait to read it. Can't wait to read it. So get to work. Yeah. Get a long plane ride home. Yes. <laughs> and then the other thing I want to do is I want to prepare uh, the country for what happens uh, when there's the next pandemic. We have to we have to do a postmortem, uh, a, 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 you know, an honest postmortem so that we prepare better for the next time. Uh, I hope to be, uh, I will be an avid reader of that postmortem. Um, Jay, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Ciao. 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 Ciao and enjoy Roma. Arrivederci. <laughs> uh, we should just before we keep going we ought to say uh, there's a bunch of things happening uh, with Ricochet right now the Texas Tribune Festival program is now live you can go there Texas's breakout politics and policy ideas event happening September 22 through 24 in Austin the lineup of big names you know and others you should including some of our own from the Ricochet Network David Drucker will be there he'll interview Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin and Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson live on the TribFest stage on September 23rd, and you get to go and explore the full program and grab tickets at tribfest.org. And if you want to attend the event, use our special discount code for a one-time 15% off discount, uh, a one general admission ticket. Go to tribfest.org, enter code RICOCHET15 in the promo code box. This will all be on the webs uh, on our show notes, but RICOCHET15 in the promo code. And um, click apply, and you you will get your discount because you're a member of Ricochet, and we hope to see you there. Also, um, 
we talked to Dr. J, of course, and that should remind us the most patriotic thing you can do these days is get out of the house and meet with as many people as possible um, and shake their hands even. Um, the perk of being a Rick Shea member is that you have access to the best of those people. Brian Stevens, Atlanta meetup last weekend was a huge success. If you weren't able to make it, be sure to keep up with the schedule on the Ricochet events page, which you can find on the sidebar of the site. I think there, I think there are pictures posted, which is kind of great. Upcoming meetups uh, are on the official schedule, but also be happening. So be prepared. Williamsburg, Virginia, Huntsville, Alabama in October. Um, thank God Huntsville, Alabama in October, because Huntsville, Alabama in, in August, I've been there, and it is, um, it's hot. October, it's gorgeous. Uh, and we've got one set for New Orleans next year during French Quarter Fest. I will certainly be there. If you're not in the Southeast and these states don't work for you, join Ricochet, give us a place and time, and the Ricochet members will come to you. Again, details on the Texas Tribune Festival and the Ricochet meetups, go to ricochet.com slash events. Uh, it's also on the sidebar on the site, and we hope to see you soon. Um, <clears throat> all right, so I know you're not pro procrastinator Charlie Cook, Charlie Cook, but you're another kind of... So um, it, this is sort of a parlor game, right? It's so early. It's not even Labor Day yet. But still, there does seem to be... It does seem to be fair to say that the Republican momentum going into the midterms has slowed. Everyone has... Uh, a reason for this, right? I mean, if you're Mitch McConnell, it's candidate quality. That's probably a little bit true. If you're, um, uh, I don't know, if you're if you're a Democrat, it's sort of like, well, the Dobbs decision. That's probably true in some places. Um, and it comes down to that age-old question, which people ask in midterms. Do you nationalize it, or do you not nationalize it? Uh, the most famous successful nationalization of a midterm was 1994. Newt Gingrich orchestrated the, the 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 takeover of the House of Representatives for the first time in 50 years by Republicans because he turned it into a national referendum. Um, and others say, ah, you know, it never happens, never works. Um, don't do that. Well, if you were um, if you were getting um, if you were working for the Democrats right now, what would you say for them to do? Well, well, I would reiterate what you said at the beginning. I, I, I would recommend that they push hard on abortion in some jurisdictions and point out some of the Republican candidates are terrible. The problem the Democrats have, and I think this is also a problem the Republicans have by extension, is that people are, to some extent, annoyed with the democrats but mostly annoyed with the climate yeah you mean the and you don't mean the climate climate change the change no, of climate. <laughs> i mean the political and economic right. climate i know and um i mean if I, if I go back to the beginning i have written and i believe this strongly that the republican party is going to look back at some point and be pleased that it lost in 2020 Mm -hmm. which it did lose in 2020. Yes. Why, why should they be pleased? Because although the Democrats have taken actions that have made things worse and made people cross with them, for example, on energy, Joe Biden has been a disaster. For example, in Afghanistan, Joe Biden made decisions that are unpopular. And the American Rescue Plan that was passed on a party-line vote last year made inflation worse. 
a lot of the conditions that we're now seeing, including some of the inflation, some of the labor market unrest, much of the supply chain mess and high gas prices would have happened anyway. Perhaps not quite to the same extent, but they would have happened anyway. And the party that presided over them, most notably the president who presided over them, was going to get blamed. Uh, especially if that president was in his second term. This is what we've learned. Could you imagine what a midterm election would look like for the Republican Party with Donald Trump, not just any president, but Donald Trump in his second term coming up on his sixth year in office? I think all of those latent issues in the economy would have been blamed on him. Yeah. And uh, voters would have would yeah, have, would have, have made slammed. better. Yeah. Well, and also we've now seen, no, not everything is Trump's fault, right? We can point to certain things and say, of course, he was overblamed for COVID because more people have died under Biden. Now, I never blamed either of them, but we can see, no, it's not just because Trump was president that people were dying of COVID. It's not just because Trump was president, we had supply chain issues and so on and so forth. But you can't see that if Trump's president, because it, all of those deaths would have happened under his Right. Presidency, whether right. they were his fault or not. So so I think that the the Democrats, although they have made it much harder for themselves and made mistakes, I think that they have been dealt a tough hand. And I think Republicans will uh, come to feel pleased that they weren't in office when it happened. The problem Republicans have is this. How do you nationalize an agenda that you don't have? I mean, you talk about Gingrich, but Gingrich uh, was clever in that he got together with the GOP in 94. He took advantage of a more conservative electorate, an electorate that had grown used by that point to having a right. conservative Republican right. presence, if not domination in Washington with Reagan and HW. And he said, what are the 70-30 issues? That's what he called them, that we can seize upon. And they came up with ones that were palatable to pretty much everyone within the party. And they ran on them. What is the Republican platform at the moment? There isn't one. There isn't uh, one. The, the Republican platform at the moment, much as the Democratic platform was in 2018, and it does work to an extent, is we're not the other side. So what do you nationalize? You nationalize Biden, perhaps. You nationalize um, the excesses of, of progressive domination of universities and the media and corporations and the culture. But there are things that the Democrats can nationalize too. And right. I mean, the yeah. argument, I, I think the argument in the Republican circles is this is do you um do you run on pocketbook discontent, uh, gas prices and inflation when gas prices are coming down, inflation six point three percent, not good, but it's not ten. Um, do you run on a, a, a faltering economy when it, it's unclear quite what where the economy is, honestly, when you look at the employment numbers? Do you run on uh, uh, woke craziness, which seems to uh, uh, actually fire up the base? Um, I don't. I don't know. I don't. I don't. I don't know what it does to the to the general electorate. Um, do you woke? Do you run on corruption? Do you run a, a, a run on Joe Biden, uh, Hunter Biden? Do you run on? It's hard to know. I, I, I agree. It's hard to know. I mean, the uh, the irony of the of the Gingrich. Uh, Win was uh, I think that I think there's ten things they're going to do the promises the contract with America, eight of them I think or seven of them at least were 
reform issues, reforming Congress, reforming how Congress did business. And it just seemed like at, after 55 years of the sclerotic, uh, uh, autocratic uh, one-party rule in the House of Representatives, that, that felt right um, attractive to voters. I'm not quite sure I know, but, but there is, I mean, there is that, if you're, if you're Tim Ryan running in Ohio, um, you have to, you have to run against the student loan bailout, which he's doing because you know, your Ohio voters don't like it, but that, mm-hmm. that makes it very difficult. I think for the Democrats in general to nationalize it. So you're right. I mean, but I'm just trying to think of, yeah, but at myself, the same what, if, time, what if you pay me a lot of money to give you advice? I don't know what, I, what advice I would give you, except um, maybe that maybe that Mitch McConnell's right all along that it really doesn't matter who the candidates are because that's what it's going to carry the day. Well, that matters, but but it also matters that perhaps not in Ohio, but in some other areas, you can run against other national issues. Abortion is one. Now, I mean, it, funny enough, it, the Supreme Court essentially said no, it's not one. But right. it's and it was correct to say that. I think the decision is correct, but. It is going like every other issue in our politics to be nationalized and elevated. And, you know, I mean, this is in a sense where the two problems Republicans have here intersect because for a lot of politicians, you can quite deftly handle that. But if you're a bad candidate and yeah. you don't speak particularly well and you're not uh, particularly well informed, then you may end up uh, suffering from the national questions that are liabilities for Republicans. And I don't think abortion is particularly, um, at least not on net. I also think that the effect of Dobbs on the election, when it comes down to it, it's going to be relatively limited just because people don't care about it as much as other things. And because there's quite a while to go. And because a lot of that, uh, gets absorbed at the local level. But it's clearly having an effect. And in that circumstance, you want adept candidates who are well-versed in the politics. And I mean, Republicans, once again, don't have them. And in 2010, they had a lot of bad candidates too, but they just had so much momentum behind them by November that it it didn't matter. It didn't matter, right? I mean, it did matter. I mean, I just went to Las Vegas last week and I uh, flew into Harry Reid Airport, which might not be called that <laughs> if he'd lost in 2010 to Sharon Angle, which he right. would have done if it hadn't been Sharon Angle. So <laughs> that's right. It's a Harry Reid Airport, right? So that was, was, was McCarran and now it's Harry Reid. Right. Now right. the fix was in there. Um, Charlie, this was a lot of fun. I, I, I kind of enjoyed this, but we didn't, we didn't. I have to split this conversation up between our tiresome partners, Peter and James. We just <laughs> nanner on. Um, thank you for joining us. The, the podcast was brought to you by Liquid IV. So support them for supporting us. It's a great product, great company. And please join Ricochet today. Take five minutes, leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. I know we always say it just sounds like static, but if you do that, uh, somehow magically the algorithm uh, allows a new listeners to discover us and that helps keep this show going. Uh, so please um, do us a favor, join Ricochet, and give us a five-star review. And we will see you next week. Thanks for joining us. Ricochet. Join the conversation.